Thank you, Rena. This morning we read from the fifth chapter of Deuteronomy, the first 15 verses, Pew Bible, it's page 282, if you want to follow along there. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, that's Sinai. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. That time I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox or your donkey or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So what do we see here? What God is saying in this passage is he's speaking to us as people, and he's saying... I want to be supreme in your affections. Look at it. He says, I am the Lord, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. I want to be supreme in your heart. What does it look like to make God supreme in your affections? He gives some outward examples here. A heart that's committed to a life of worshiping God. That's one of the commandments. A mouth that jealously guards the honor of God, not misusing his name. A schedule that is built around God's own pattern in creation of working six days and resting one. You say, Greg, is that just an Old Testament thing? Not exactly, because it predates Moses. It goes back to creation. It's grounded in the fact that God worked six days and rested one. It takes a certain form in the Mosaic Code, but you see it even continuing in the New Testament. Jesus affirmed the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 6, he, he went on the, 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 the Sabbath day to the synagogue, as was his custom. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man 
for the Sabbath. You see in the book of Acts where on the first day of the week, that's the day that Christ rose, the Christians stopped for the breaking of bread. They took a day off in order to observe the Lord's Supper. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, on the first day of the week, I want you to gather and present your offerings in proportional to your income. They were worshiping on the first day of the week. And Revelation chapter 1, John says, his revelation of God, of Jesus, came to him on the Lord's day, the day Christ rose. So we seem to see a shift from a very strict Sabbath uh, in the Old Testament on, on Saturday to the Christians observing it in principle by gathering together on Sunday. It's a general principle. For me, I work every Sunday. And so for me, I, I take kind of the Muslim Sabbath. I take Friday off. Um, but, but for God to be supreme in your affections means that he's placing his imprint on your entire life. And it means having a deep sense, therefore, of the glory of God. The glory of God speaks of God's weightiness, that thing that, that, that makes something or someone weighty in your eyes, that prompts you to honor and respect them. The glory of God is his infinite beauty and manifestation of his character. It's, it's, it's his fame. It's what puts his supremacy on display. It's the going public of God's infinite worth. To, to make God supreme in your affections means that he captures your heart and you want nothing more than to know God, to walk with God, to honor God. And you are supremely concerned with his honor, the honor of his name. It's something you see throughout the Bible. Psalm 19, the heavens declare what? The glory of God, his fame. In Isaiah 6, the angels that surround God and shield their eyes cry out night and day of God's holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let all the earth be filled with his what? His glory. Psalm 96, give to the Lord the glory to his name. Philippians 2, we confess Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, that we'd have hearts that are aflame with a passion for the glory of God. That he would be supreme in our own hearts. To have God central to your affections. It means a radical commitment to make God the center of your life. Not as a personal assistant, but, but, but as, as your Lord. Even in the midst of hardship and sorrow and loss. To know him as the infinite Lord who is supreme. Uh, it, it's to have no other gods. It, it's a life-altering paradigm shift. You think of Job after he had suffered so much, so much loss, hardship. His life was miserable. He wanted to be dead. And yet what could he say in his brokenness, in his shame, in his sorrow and loss? He can nevertheless say, though the Lord slay me, yet will I follow him. The Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. It's the hardest words you will ever have to say. May the name of the Lord be praised. Even in the midst of hardship. To nevertheless have a vision that this life is about more than me and what I have experienced. It is about my God who is great and holy and majestic. Who is worthy of all honor and glory and power and praise. And who has the ability to take that which is detestable and evil and renew it and redeem it and transform it. And yet I will give him honor. It, it speaks to all of life. Live for the glory of God. To have no other gods before him. 
means when you're driving down King's Highway and some minivan comes crashing into the back of your car, totals it, and, 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 and there are bags exploding all around you, and you're freaking out, and you're thinking, oh, how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to be okay? What if I'm sick? What if I don't know that I'm injured? What if I wake up tomorrow and I can't get out of bed? And how am I going to cover my deductible? And what if my insurance cancels me and says, no? car crashes into you and you say, well, this stinks, but God is on his throne. Lord, how can I glorify you in this situation? Because there's somebody who might be injured in the car behind me, and I need to get out and check on them. And they may be okay, but they may be crushed on the inside because they may be freaking out, wondering about their insurance and their deductible in their car and how they're going to pay for it. And what if they're injured and don't know it and wake up tomorrow and can't get out of bed? So I'm going to go pray for them. And I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And I'm going to tell them that I forgive them. My insurance company might not, but I do because God has forgiven me such bigger things in Jesus. I am going to glorify you in the midst of hardship. It means when you're in a marital conflict that goes on for months, perhaps years, and you're seeing a counselor and you're talking to your pastor and you've got your community group praying for you and you've got your shepherding elder praying for you, it means sitting down across the table from your spouse and and passing through that deliberate, intentional threshold where you say, whatever this is, whatever goes on, however hard it is, however much suffering I'm going to have to put up with, no matter how much I have to forgive or be forgiven, I am going to glorify God in my marriage, whatever it takes. And when you pass through that threshold together, friends, there's not a marriage on earth that cannot be redeemed significantly in this life. It's what George Whitfield, the great revivalist, said in the 1700s. He said, let the name of Whitfield perish so long as God is glorified. It's what Jesus said when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him pick up his cross daily. It's easy to deal with a God that you've made up, a fairy story God, but dealing with the real God means doing so on his terms. He wants to be the supreme treasure of your life. He wants to be supreme in your affections. So why is this so important, friends? Because God is supreme in his own affections. It's what we see in this passage. Did you notice in verse 11 how obsessed God is with his own reputation, with how people treat his name? How concerned God is for his honor for his fame, that his name would be great, that his name would be reverenced as a thing of infinite beauty and honor. Uh, You know, you say, Greg, well, this is the Old Testament. I don't know how that vetoes anything, but even in the New Testament, how does Jesus teach us to pray? He says, when you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven. And then he rattles off seven requests. First request, may your name be hallowed. May your name be treated as something holy second request. May your kingdom come. Third request. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Seven things to pray for, Jesus says, and the first three are all about the honor and the glory and the fame of the name of your God. Because that's what God is concerned with. That's the passion of Jesus' heart, that you would enter into that and share that and live that. It's writ large throughout redemptive history. Why did God rescue the Israelites from Egypt? Psalm 106. He saved them for his own name's sake to make his power known. Why did he raise up Pharaoh? Romans 9. 
to display my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Why did God defeat Pharaoh? Exodus 14. I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh. Why did God spare the Israelites later on in the wilderness? Ezekiel 20. They utterly desecrated my Sabbath, says the Lord. So I said I would pour out my wrath, but for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Why does Jesus say the Father will answer your prayers? It's what Rena read earlier. Jesus says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What is the Holy Spirit's ministry? The Bible says, Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me. What should motivate everything we do as followers of Jesus? You who follow Jesus, 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Why is Jesus coming back? 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. He'll return in order to be glorified in his holy people and marvel that among those who have believed. What is God's ultimate trajectory for planet Earth? Habakkuk chapter 2. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is supreme in his own affections. God loves himself with all of his heart and all of his mind and all of his soul and all of his strength. God is not an idolater. God is not violating the first and greatest commandment. The most passionate heart for God in all the universe is God's heart. Who does he think he is? The center of his own universe? Well, yes. You know, oftentimes when we first hear this, it tends to hit us like a ton of bricks because it's so different from the concepts of God we grow up with, even in in churches. And yet most cultures throughout history would have assumed that any God is seeking his own glory. It's what's summed up in deity. It's what sets creatures apart from the creator. J.I. Packer says, if it's right for a man to have the glory of God as his goal, Can it be wrong for God to aim for the same goal? If a man can have no higher end or motive than the glory of God, then how can God? It's wrong for a man to seek a lesser end than this, and it would be wrong for God as well. The reason it cannot be right for man to live for himself as if he were God is simply the fact that he's not. The reason why it cannot be wrong for God to seek his own glory is simply the fact that he is God. Back in the 1700s, when a Presbyterian minister would seek ordination, there was a, a question that was asked at the ordination exam by the members of the Presbytery, and it was a bad question. It's one they don't ask anymore. But the question of any man wanting to be a pastor was this. Would you be willing to be damned for the glory of God? If God called you to, would you be willing to suffer an eternity apart from him, being crushed under his judgment, billions and billions and billions of years into the future for eternity, if God decided that that would bring him glory and honor and praise as a God who is just? And if you couldn't answer yes, 
you couldn't be ordained. Now, it's a bad question because God's will for his elect, for his people, is not that you would be damned for his glory, but that you would be saved for his glory. And indeed, life itself is to be found in relationship with God, and so you wouldn't want to be cut off from that. So it's a bad question, but it's a telling question because it speaks something to the real heart motivation. Would you be willing to go through anything if it was the will of God, your Father in heaven? Are you living for his glory? Are you living for your own? Now, the reason it's a bad question is because the flip side of glorifying God means finding your satisfaction in God supremely and in God alone. He is the one to be treasured more than gold or silver, the one who alone can satisfy. God is all goodness. What is the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Question number one. The first thing every baby Christian or child who grows up in the church ought to know. What is the chief end of man? Why are we here? What is our purpose? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Friends, are you finding yourself filled with joy at the thought of God or dread at the thought of God? If God is goodness and light and life itself, he's infinite. We're dependent upon him. We're derived from him. We have our origin and goal in the one who made us for himself to bring glory to him and to find satisfaction in him. His calling is to set our hearts supremely on him and to drink up the pure goodness and mercy and compassion and light and life to bask in all that he is for us in Christ. It's the truest, purest humanism because it puts us in our proper relationship as humans to our creator. God is saying, I want to be supreme in your affections, that you would have no other gods before me. So why is that so hard? It's hard, friends, because we tend to worship other things instead of God. It's our universal human experience, and that's the warning here when God says, don't bow down to an idol, to anything in heaven, on earth, you know, or, or below the earth. What's an idol? Idols are always good things to begin with. And it talks about an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, on the earth below, and the waters beneath. These are all good parts of God's creation in their own relationship with God. What makes them idols is when we take a good thing and we turn it into an ultimate thing, something that we have to have. When in verse 9, we bow down to it and worship it as if it's God, as if it can satisfy, as if it's the thing for which we were made. And it can be certainly an animal or a geologic feature. The Roman emperor Constantine, before becoming a Christian, uh, worshipped the, the sun, Sol Invictus, the invincible sun, the one up in heaven, the sky. But the Bible also teaches that there are more subtle idols at the heart level that we bow down to and worship. Paul in Colossians 3, for example, uh, tells us to put to death greed, which is idolatry. Uh, it's putting money or possessions or the thing that money can, can, can get you. Uh, making that ultimate money is a good thing, but it's making it into an ultimate thing. There are so many things we can turn into idols. It can be your career or a relationship or a marriage or your parenting or your image or how other people perceive you. 
It can be putting bread on the table or having a good job, the approval of a parent or a lover or a peer group, getting published in the right kind of journals, having your personal comfort or a certain lifestyle or your personal freedom. Anything can become an idol. They're good things that we turn into ultimate things. And so how do we know that we've done that? Tim Keller gives one set of diagnostics. He says this, You may regularly go to a place of worship where you are a member. You may have a full, devout set of doctrinal beliefs. You may be trying very hard to believe and obey God. However, what is your real daily functional salvation? What are you really living for? What is your real, not just your professed God? He says a good way to discern this is how you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes. If you ask for something and you don't get it, you may become ang- angry or sad or disappointed. That's, that's normal. But if it's an idol, you're going to become more than angry or sad or disappointed. You're going to, 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 to uh, uh, have explosive anger. You're going to sink into despair. And at that point, you found your real God because you're angry enough at that point possibly even to die. Another test, he says, is to look at your uncontrollable emotions. Just as a fisherman looking for a fish knows to go where the water is roiling, look for your idols at the bottom of your painful emotions, especially those that never seem to lift and that drive you to do things that you know are wrong. If you're angry, ask yourself the question, is there something here that is too important for me? Something I'm telling myself I have to have at all costs. Do the same thing about your strong fear and your despair and your guilt. Ask yourself, am I so scared because something is being threatened, which I think is a necessity when it is not? Am I so down on myself because I've lost or failed at something, which I think is a necessity when it's not? If you're overworking, driving yourself into the ground with frantic activity, ask yourself, Do I feel that I must have this thing to be fulfilled and significant? When you ask questions like that, he writes, you pull up your emotions by the roots, as it were, and sometimes you find your idols clinging to them. It's hard because we tend to bow down to lesser things, and yet God is still saying, I want to be supreme in your affections. Friends, how is this possible? possible because in verse 15, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It's possible, friends, because you have in the Lord a rescuer. He says in verse 6, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of slavery. What kind of God am I? The Lord asks, I am a God who rescues his people. This rescue is accomplished before he gives any of the commands. He's not saying, I want you to do all these things and make me supreme and then I will rescue you. No, he's saying, you weren't doing any of these things, but I rescued you and brought you out of bondage into the freedom of knowing me so that you can live with a heart aflame for me, ready to serve me at great cost. Let me be your hero in time of need functional savior. It's his own honor, realize, that compels God to redeem broken, damaged sinners like us. 
yes, the most passionate heart for God in all the universe is God's heart. And yet God's passionate love for his own glory is precisely what drives him to rescue, redeem, and save forever all those who bear his name. See, there's a covenant relationship here. Verse 2, 3, 4, he made a covenant with us. Verse 6, I am the Lord your God. That's a possessive, meaning, yes, you are my people. I own you, but I am also your God. You own me in the sense of being bound to me in a covenant relationship. It's what in the New Testament is described in the language of union with Christ, language that that St. Paul uses about 140 different times just in his 13 letters. You united to Christ. You died with Christ. You've risen with Christ. You are in Christ, in the Lord, in him, united with him. 140 times he speaks of this covenant relationship we have with God through Christ in which we are his and he is ours and nothing can change that. William Tyndale said it this way. He said, Christ is in you and you in him, knit together inseparably so that... You cannot be damned unless Christ is damned with you. And Christ cannot be saved, friends, unless you are saved with him. And it's not because God is looking at something in you saying, you've come to church, you've confessed your sins, you're a good boy, you're a good girl, I'm impressed with your progress, therefore I'm going to save you and rescue you. Friends, you have to have a hope that's grounded in something a whole lot deeper than that. And if your hope is grounded in God's own self-focused love for his honor and glory, friends, if that is your hope, then you have certain salvation in Jesus. Why did God restore Israel after the exile? It's right there in Ezekiel chapter 36. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to save you, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you've gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, that the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord. When I am proved holy through you before their eyes, I am going to sprinkle you clean with water. I'm going to make you clean and cleanse you from all your impurities and all of your idols. I'm going to give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'm going to remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to keep my laws. And you're going to be my people. And I'm going to be your God. And I'm going to save you from all of your uncleanness. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Do you hear it, friends? The same repetition we see in the 48th chapter of Isaiah, where God says, For my own sake I hold back my wrath. For the sake of my praise I hold it back from you, so as not to cut you off. See, I have refined you. Though not as silver, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, friends. For my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? 
I will not yield my glory to another. It's a six-fold repetition. God's saying, I'm going to save you. In your rebellion, in your sin, with your shame, your addictions, your brokenness, your loss, your sorrows, your grief, your troubled marriages, your poverty, you can't pay your bills. I'm going to save you for my sake because I have placed my name upon you. I will redeem you. I do forgive you. I will restore you. I will bring you, my sons, to glory. That's a covenant relationship. The most passionate heart for God in all the earth is God's heart. And he is a God who, because of that passion for his glory, is jealous to save and display his mercy, and display his grace, to, to put his compassion clear as a billboard for all the earth to see I will save those who take their shelter in me. It's a covenant motivation, an internal motivation, something in God's heart that makes him compelled to show compassion to rebellious sons whom he then restores. Friends, if God is that passionate about redeeming his people, That means God is willing to pay absolutely any price in order to accomplish it. And friends, that's exactly what we see in Jesus. While every other God demands your life from you, the God of the Bible is the only one who gives his life for you in order to glorify himself by saving those who bear his name and the name of his son is a God who has scars, a God who came to earth, who took your guilt, who took your shame, who took your brokenness, a man of sorrows who knows what it's like because he took all of my guilt and all of my sin. I know I am always the biggest sinner in the room, friends, and yet we have a God who took all of that shame and all of that wickedness, and all of that depravity, everything that is abominable and despicable and shameful and disgraceful, the things you don't want anybody to know about, the things you've done, the things you've thought, the things you longed for. He took all of that from all of his people throughout all of history, and he put it upon himself on the cross. It was the most intense concentration of sin and guilt and shame in the history of the cosmos as all of our guilt was transferred to Christ and he bore it in his body on a tree. He bore the scars. He took the wounds and he took the Father's displeasure such that the Father turned away from him and said, you are not my son. And the son said, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me, abandoned friends, so that you might never be abandoned by God? And then in Christ, he takes all of the righteousness of Christ and transfers it to you. Your sin has been paid for by God himself. He bears it in the scars on his hands and his feet, even at his resurrection, friends. They are the scars and the wounds of love that speak the certainty of your salvation. Look outside yourself, friends. Look at Jesus. Cling to him. Trust in him. He is able to save. Some of you have heard of a woman, Vietnamese woman, 55 years old. Her name is is Kim Phuc. 
she writes this. She says, you've seen my picture a thousand times. We've got that picture. Can we get that slide? It's a picture that made the world gasp, a picture that defined my life. I'm nine years old. I'm running along a puddled roadway in front of an expressionless soldier. My arms are outstretched. I am naked. I am shrieking in pain and fear. The dark contour of napalm cloud billows in the distance. I am the napalm girl. My own people, the South Vietnamese, had been bombing trade routes used by the Viet Cong rebels. I had not been targeted, of course. I'd simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Those bombs have brought me immeasurable pain. Even now, 40 years later, I am still receiving treatment for burns that cover my arms and my back and my neck. But the emotional and spiritual pain was even harder to endure. And yet, looking back at the past 50 years, I realized those same bombs brought so much suffering and yet also brought me great healing because those bombs are what led me to Jesus Christ. As a child, I was raised in the religion of Kaldai. My grandparents were important leaders in the religion and enjoyed the respect of our community. I followed in their footsteps, devoted myself to my religion, as did my sisters and brothers. Um, she continues, we had a mantra ingrained into us. You are God, and God is you. We were equal opportunity worshipers. We worshiped every God. And yet, looking back, my family's religion was a charm bracelet strung about my waist. Uh, each dangling bauble uh, represented another possibility of divine assistance. I was encouraged to rub those charms in hopes that, we, that some help would arrive. And for years, I prayed to the gods of Kaldai for healing and for peace. But after one prayer and another went unanswered, it became clear that either they were non-existent or these gods did not care. So I continued to bear the weight of anger and bitterness and resentment toward those who caused my suffering, the searing fire that penetrated my body, the ensuing burn baths, the dry and itchy skin, the inability to sweat in the sweltering heat of Vietnam. I craved relief that would never come. And yet, despite my external circumstances, mind, body, soul, the most agonizing pain I suffered during that season dwelled in my own heart. I was alone, as alone as a person can be. I couldn't turn to a friend. Nobody wanted to befriend me. I was toxic, and everyone knew it. To be near me was to be near hardship wise people stayed far away. I was alone atop a mountain of rage. Why was I made to wear these awful scars? I grew up hearing a proverb, a tree wants to be alone, but the wind whips it here and there, and that was me. I was a wind-whipped tree, and I feared I would never stand upright again. In 1982, I found myself crouched inside Saigon's Central Library, pulling Vietnamese books of religion off shelves one by one. The stack in front of me had books on Baha'i, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and Kaodai, and also a copy of the New Testament. I thumbed through several books before pulling out the New Testament and putting it in my lap. And one hour later, I had picked my way through the Gospels, and at least two themes were already abundantly clear. First, despite all that I had learned through Kaodai, that there were many gods, that there were many paths to holiness, that the burden of success in my religion rest atop my own weary, slumped shoulders, 
Jesus presented himself as the way, the truth, and the life. His entire ministry, it appeared, pointed out one straightforward claim. I am the way to get you to God. There's no other way but me. The second thing I saw early on was that this Jesus had suffered greatly in defense of his claim. He had been mocked, tortured, and killed. Why would Jesus endure these things, I wondered, if he were not, in fact, God? We have another picture of her today. Uh, Next slide. All right, maybe we don't have that next slide. There we are. She says, I had never been exposed to this side of Jesus, the wounded one, the one who also bore scars. I turned over this new information in my mind as a gem in my hand, relishing the light that was cast from all sides. The more I read, the more I came to believe that he really was who he said he was, that he really had done what he said he had done, and that most important to me, he really would do all that he had promised in his word. Perhaps he could help me make sense of my pain and at last come to terms with my scars. My salvation experience happened on Christmas Eve, 1982, as I was attending a worship service at a small church in Saigon. The pastor spoke about how Christmas was not about the gifts we give to each other so much as about one gift in particular, the gift of Jesus the Christ. And as I listened to this message, I knew that something was shifting that moment inside of me, how desperately I needed peace, how ready I was for love and for joy. I had so much hatred in my heart, so much bitterness. I wanted to let go of all my pain. I wanted to pursue life instead of holding fast to fantasies of my death. I wanted this Jesus. And so when the pastor finished speaking, I stood up. I stepped out into the aisle. I made my way to the front, and I said yes to Jesus Christ. And there, in a small church in Vietnam, mere miles from the street where my journey had begun amid the chaos of war, on the night before the world would celebrate the birth of the Messiah, I invited Jesus to save me. And when I woke up that Christmas morning, I experienced the kind of healing that can only come from God. For the first time in my life, I was at peace. A half century had passed since I found myself running, frightened, naked, in pain down that road in Vietnam. I will never forget the horrors that day, the bombs, the fire, the shrieks, the fear. I will not forget the years of trial and torment that followed. But when I think about how far I have come, the freedom and peace that comes with Jesus, I realize there is nothing greater or more powerful than the love of a blessed God and Savior who suffered. My faith in Jesus has enabled me to forgive those who caused my scars. It has enabled me to pray for my enemies rather than curse them. And it has enabled me not just to tolerate them, but truly to love them. I will forever bear the scars of that day. And that picture will always serve as a reminder of the unspeakable evil of which humanity is capable. That picture defined my life, but in the end it gave me a mission a ministry, and a cause. And today, I thank God for that picture. Today, I thank God for everything, even for that horrible road, especially for that road. Friends, 
There is a God who has scars, a God of greatness and a God of glory who is passionate to rescue you to the point of bearing the scars that display his love. Let us pray. Father and our God, we cry out to you asking that you would show us this Jesus, Lord, that you would come to us, display your mercy upon us and within us, transform and change us, we pray. And we consecrate to you now, Lord, the elements on this table that you would bring good news to us, your people, because you, Lord, have died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Amen.